Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, our UTC committee co-chair, Paul Haig of uh, J.V. Rate, Hewer, and Weiss in Southfield, Michigan, will introduce today's speakers. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you for the uh, introduction for setting this up for us today. Uh, my name is Paul Haig, and I'm co-chair of the ABI's Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee, and uh, appreciate everybody joining us uh, for today's call today. We started these calls a couple years ago uh, with the thinking being that one way we could uh, interact better with the membership of our very large committee here uh, is to have calls every month or two and talk about a hot issue, a hot opinion, uh, or a hot topic. And it wouldn't be a webinar or a lecture necessarily, but it, it would be uh, an opportunity for people to, uh, a discussion, an opportunity for having uh, some collaboration back and forth. So we do encourage, and as we go through the call today, encourage and invite, if you have a question or a comment that you want to ask uh, of the speakers or, or a point you want to make, uh, you're welcome to do that. Just just unmute your line as, uh, as Martha just described. Uh, and additionally, um, you know, we do try and do these calls periodically every month or two. So if you have an idea, um, for a future call or would be interested in leading a discussion on a future call, uh, please uh, reach out to me. Uh, my email address is phage at jackielaw.com and uh, we'll see if we can get it set up. It's, uh, we're always looking for speakers. So uh, any event, uh, just a couple announcements before we do get started with the panel. Uh, as Martha said, I am the uh, co-chair of the Unseared Trade Creditors Committee. Um, we have some new leadership on the committee. Brent Weisenberg of Ballard Spar has been uh, has co-chaired this committee for the last two years and has done just a tremendous job uh, leading the committee. His his term is up, and so uh, Brent will be moving on to uh, to bigger and better things, I'm sure. But uh, my new co-chair on this committee is Mark Felger from Cozen O'Connor. I'm not sure if Mark is on the line, but he's been very involved in the committee. Uh, for a long time, so wanted to recognize him and look forward to working with him next year. Uh, another announcement I wanted to make is we are doing, as always, a, a panel at the uh, ABI's spring meeting next month. We have just a tremendous panel. It's called Beware of the Traps, Ethical and Fiduciary Issues for Committee Members and Professionals. Uh, and the panel includes Brent Weisenberg, uh, the Honorable Melanie Siganowski from the formerly of the Eastern District of uh, New York, Jeff Pomerantz from Pacholsky, and uh, the Honorable Mary Walverath from Delaware. So it's a really strong panel uh, talking about ethical and fiduciary issues for committees. Uh, our time slot is 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. So uh, make an effort to, uh, to get in at a decent time on Friday night and try and join us for that, uh, what will be an excellent program. Uh, one final announcement I want to make before we get started is that, and those of you who have been involved in this committee for a long time may remember this, but the committee has been working for a number of years on a book um, uh, dealing with uh, the topic of representing creditors committees. Uh, this project started again, I would say four or five years ago, and uh, has finally, through the efforts of many, many people, uh, has come to fruition and actually is going to be published this week by the ABI. So the book is called Representing the Creditors Committee, A Guide for Practitioners. Um, many members of this committee uh, helped in, in drafting different chapters of the book, which is over 200 pages. Uh, so it was really a group effort and I hope that you'll check it out uh, either online or at the bookstore that they have at the ABI spring meeting. Uh, next month, and uh, special credit should go with respect to this book to Mark Felger, Felger, who really took the lead on getting this thing across the finish line, including uh, with the help of people at his firm uh, getting the book edited and, and proofread and all that and ready for publication. So it's an excellent book, and I hope you'll check it out. Uh, really a group effort from this committee over a long period of time. So with that, I want to turn to um, our topic today. Uh, which is gifting, uh, and in particular, this is an issue that we thought has become very relevant uh, because of the Third Circuit's opinion this past summer in a case called ICL Holdings, um, which affirmed a Delaware bankruptcy court's approval of a sale of substantially all of the debtor's assets 
and in doing so, uh, a portion of the sale proceeds bypassed the priority unsecured creditors uh, and went to general unsecured creditors as part of a settlement with the creditors committee. So uh, gifting has always been a hot topic and I think this Third Circuit opinion has really brought it back into the spotlight. And uh, we've invited two uh, speakers to talk on this topic today who have written on it and studied uh, these cases uh, quite a bit. Uh, and they are Simon Fraser and Rick Kruger. Uh, and first, Simon is a member at Cozen O'Connor in Wilmington, Delaware. He has represented a variety of stakeholders in bankruptcy proceedings, including secured and unsecured creditors, trustees, debtors, committees, equity holders, and asset purchasers. He has an undergraduate degree from Johns Hopkins University and uh, his law degree from Villanova University School of Law. So I guess we know who he's reading for this weekend. Uh, and he published an article on the Third Circuit's ICO Holdings opinion um, in the December 2015 ABI Journal. Uh, our other speaker is Rick Kruger, who is a partner in the Southfield, Michigan office of Jaffe Rate Hewer and Weiss. Rick has a national practice uh, focusing on both transactional and litigation aspects of bankruptcy law, debtor and creditors' rights, workouts, and financing transactions. Rick earned his bachelor's degree from Michigan State University and obtained his law degree with honors from the Illinois Institute of Technology, Chicago Kent College of Law. Uh, so we have two great speakers here, and with that, um, I'll turn it over to them. Simon? Oh, thanks, Paul. So we're talking about gifting, and gifting is a, a way of affecting distributions uh, without having to comply with the absolute priority rule. So I'm going to start just with some, some background on the absolute priority rule. Uh, what is it, and uh, when does it apply? Well, as, as codified, it's found at uh, Section 1129B2B of the Bankruptcy Code, and it requires that if a dissenting class of impaired creditors will not receive the full value of their claims under the plan, then no junior claim or interest holder may receive or retain under the plan any property on account of such junior claim or interest. So it applies explicitly in cram-down plan situations. Um, as a little bit of history, the absolute priority rule actually evolved as a judge-made invention and was never actually set out in the Bankruptcy Act. Instead, it was created as, as use as a standard for assessing the Act's requirement that a plan of reorganization be fair and equitable. As initially articulated by the Supreme Court in 1913, the rule required that creditors were entitled to be paid before stockholders could retain any interests. And the rule evolved uh, apparently in response to a trend in the olden days of the late 1800s and early 1900s of lenders um, essentially buying the cooperation of the owners of a bankrupt company in exchange for allowing the owners some stake in the reorganized entity, often to the detriment of other creditors. And the rule finally became codified when the bankruptcy code was introduced and now obviously applies not just to holders of old equity but to any class of junior claimants. So. When does the rule apply? We, we know that it applies in cram-down plan situations, but uh, distributions occur in situations other than just plan distributions. So the, the initial question, I guess, is do we even need to resort to the gifting doctrine because does the absolute priority rule apply? In, in the non-plan settlement context, I'm often distributions are made in connection with settlement of a, of a claim. And the sort of most recent um, and most influential circuit-level opinion on non-plan settlement proceed distributions is the Iridium opinion from the Second Circuit in 2007. And the court rejected a per se rule that a distribution made in connection with a non-planned settlement must comply with the absolute priority rule. Instead of making compliance with the absolute priority rule mandatory, the, the Second Circuit held that um, a settlement's compliance with the absolute priority rule is but one factor of the court's analysis of whether to approve the settlement, albeit the most important factor. So it would be possible uh, under the Iridium holding for uh, a distribution in connection with a settlement to be approved even where the distribution didn't comply with the adversary, with the um, absolute priority rule. But, but that would be an unusual case. What The way the court explained it in the, in the Iridium opinion is uh, the court said, 
whether a particular settlement's distribution scheme complies with the code's priority scheme must be the most important factor for the bankruptcy court to consider when determining whether a settlement is fair and equitable under Rule 9019. The court must be certain that parties to a settlement have not employed a settlement as a means to avoid the priority strictures of the bankruptcy code. And the, the court continued. In the Chapter 11 context, whether a settlement's distribution plan complies with the Bankruptcy Code's priority scheme will often be the dispositive factor. However, where the remaining factors weigh heavily in favor of approving a settlement, the Bankruptcy Court, in its discretion, could endorse a settlement that does not comply in some minor respects with the priority rule if the parties to the settlement justify and the reviewing court clearly articulates the reasons for approving a settlement that deviates from the priority rule. So under Iridium, it is possible for a distribution made outside of a plan but in connection with a settlement to uh, win court approval even though the distribution might not comply with the absolute priority rule. Um, I should add that there's also an, an earlier opinion in uh, 1984 from the Fifth Circuit that does appear to apply the absolute priority rule more forcefully in the context of a, a non-plan settlement in the AWECO AWECO case. The Fifth Circuit held that uh, in order for a settlement to win approval, the bankruptcy court must conclude that priority of payment will be respected as to objecting senior creditors. So the Fifth Circuit appeared to apply the absolute priority rule more forcefully than the Second Circuit in, in Iridium. But as the much more recent case, um, I think that Iridium would be, would be more influential. Uh, another context where distributions in a non-plan setting might be made as in connection with a structured dismissal. And in the Third Circuit's Jevic opinion in 2015, the court was assessing whether, um, well, it was a settlement, but a settlement sort of interwoven with a structured dismissal and a distribution of the settlement proceeds was, was proposed to be made um, that would skip uh, Warren Act claimants. And the argument against the, the settlement was that uh, it violated the absolute priority rule. The, the Third Circuit agreed with the, the Iridium approach, it ex explicitly agreed with the Iridium approach that uh, the absolute priority rule should not be a, a mandatory prerequisite to the approval of a settlement, but instead um, held that uh, whether uh, a settlement violates the absolute priority rule is, is instead um, simply an important factor in, in the analysis. Uh, the court ended up approving the, the distribution scheme in connection with the settlement in, in JEVIC uh, to the chagrin of the Warn Act claimants. Um, and, and the court explained its, its reasoning by, by saying that uh, in the context of a settlement as opposed to plan confirmation, um, it makes more sense for the code to leave bankruptcy courts with more flexibility in approving settlements. Um, in contrast to the, the rigid application of the absolute priority rule that, that um, would apply in, in the plan context. Uh, what the court stated in, in articulating the, the standard for, for evaluating uh, non-plan distributions, um, it said, um, we therefore hold that bankruptcy courts may approve settlements that deviate from the priority scheme of Section 507 of the Bankruptcy Code only if they have specific and credible grounds to justify the deviation. So um, regardless of the context where you have some kind of a distribution of estate property, you're going to have the absolute priority rule applying either as an important factor in the court's analysis, as, as in Iridium and, and Jevic, or as an absolute prerequisite where um, it would apply as, a, as in a, a cram down plan distribution. So if you're, if you're looking at sort of the validity of, of any kind of distribution, the absolute priority rule is, is something that you're going to have to, to uh, deal with. Uh, one, one way around the uh, absolute priority rule, it's been sort of variously referred to as an exception or a corollary, is the new value exception. And um, under this principle, a junior claimant may nonetheless retain or receive property under a plan if it is doing so not on account of its junior claim or interest, but instead as a quid pro quo for its provision of new capital or other property to the debtor. The, another a second way around the absolute priority rule, which is what we're going to uh, spend the bulk of this call discussing, is the concept of gifting. 
Um, this concept holds that the absolute priority rule is not implicated where a junior creditor receives a transfer of property directly from a non-debtor party as opposed to from the estate. Uh, and because the transfer in question is one directly from a non-debtor, the theory goes the transfer is not of estate property and is not subject to the Bankruptcy Code's distribution scheme. Um, it's thought of as a, as a gift given by um, another party, uh, a more senior creditor uh, or a higher priority creditor, um, basically giving a gift of its own property to a junior creditor and, and skipping over an intermediate class. And you know, if if the, the parties structure that in such a way that the court finds that um, the, the property being given is property not of the estate but of the senior creditor, then you're you're likely to to fall within the gifting doctrine and and so um, evade the strictures of the at, um, absolute priority rule. So so that's the gifting doctrine and how it can be used to get around the absolute priority rule. Um, now Rick is going to talk about the uh, the evolution of the gifting doctrine. Uh, thanks, Simon. Um, yes, to. Uh, give some background before we get into the uh, ICL case in particular. I'm going to run through some older cases, uh, uh, SPM Manufacturing, Armstrong World, and uh, DBSD, uh, where um, some parties were more uh, successful at uh, gifting than, than others. Uh, the SPM Manufacturing cases uh, of older vintage, of course, it's a 93 First Circuit opinion involving what was initially a uh, Chapter 11 debtor. Uh, the, the Chapter 11 debtor was uh, attempting to reorganize by filing a plan and uh, went through uh, various iterations of a plan, um, during which time the committee, the uh, Committee of Unsecured Creditors, uh, realized that uh, reorganization was not feasible. And it undertook uh, direct negotiations with uh, its, with SPM Manufacturing senior secure lender, and basically they cut a deal uh, whereby they agreed to share. Uh, the senior secure lender said, I'll, I'll give you some of the proceeds from my uh, sale of my uh, collateral, and the committee would also give uh, proceeds to the senior secure lender uh, with the IRS uh, being a priority unsecured creditor in the middle and uh, skipping between the two parties and not including the IRS's claim. Um, What's interesting, of course, is that uh, neither the committee nor the, the lender sought 9019 approval. This was not, a, was not a true settlement from that perspective. And you wonder if they would have sought 9019 approval if, if things would have uh, resulted differently. Instead, they engineered and executed this uh, outside, almost secret agreement. Um, during the process of the case, uh, eventually, of course, the reorganization failed. Um, and the uh, senior secured lender uh, obtained the appointment of a receiver and the sale of the collateral um, essentially outside the bankruptcy as it was coupled with stay relief. Um, later in the case, uh, after it now it converted to a Chapter 7, uh, the uh, committee and the senior secured lender decided that, yes, we want to get the court involved and we want to uh, obtain an order which uh, allows for the proceeds to flow from the uh, senior secure lender to the general unsecured creditor skipping the IRS uh, by giving those funds to the Chapter 7 trustee to uh, administer only for the benefit of the general unsecured creditors. Now, it was at this point that, that the court got involved. And um, some may say that this was not really even a bankruptcy issue, but in any event, because the bankruptcy court was asked to uh, rule on this, the bankruptcy court said, I, I don't like what's happening here, and uh, there is the absolute priority rule. Um, you should not be cutting deals uh, outside of uh, that or in violation of the absolute priority rule. And the bankruptcy judge uh, ordered that instead of the senior secured lender providing funds to uh, the committee or to the trustee for the benefit of the unsecured creditors. Rather, the bankruptcy court ordered uh, the senior secured lender to give up those funds to the trustee to administer uh, pursuant to the bankruptcy code and in contemplation of the IRS's uh, priority lien. Uh, that, of course, was appealed, and uh, the appeal ended up uh, with the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. 
Second Circuit uh, undertook uh, a review of the bankruptcy court's order, and uh, interestingly, um, it did not review, and in particular it said, uh, quote, no question is raised in this appeal as to whether the agreement is binding on citizens and the committee, uh, end quote. Instead, what they were deciding was whether the bankruptcy court's order uh, requiring the senior secured lender to give up some of its proceeds to the trustee for full administration um, to all creditors was appropriate. And uh, the Second Circuit went through various analysis and said, well, you know, Chapter 7 priorities is not, uh, the, the priority rules do not apply here because you have a situation where you've got assets that were sold, um, they were converted to cash, the cash was subject to uh, this lien, the senior secure creditor made an agreement outside of bankruptcy, essentially, by which uh, it was going to provide some of its uh, funds to the creditors. And because of that, uh, the bankruptcy code really is not implicated at all. And uh, so they said the holding here was that the bankruptcy court erred as a matter of law in ordering citizens, the senior secure creditor, to pay to the trustee the amount due to the committee under the agreement. And instead, uh, the bankruptcy court said that these are not property of the estate. Um, the stay relief, uh, citizens was granted stay relief. These funds were subject to their lien and could then be gifted by uh, the senior secure lender directly to the committee. And because uh, the, this was done outside the, uh, the bankruptcy code, there was not really even that plan in place. Because all those things came together, then the Second Circuit uh, overruled the bankruptcy court's order, and presumably uh, after the, the fallout of this, the, the funds did go from uh, the senior secure lender to the unsecured creditors committee for, for distribution um, around the IRS's priority lien. And um, so that, that's one way of doing it, of course, is to not even seek 9019 approval and uh, instead um, um, execute an agreement that is um, – reportedly outside of the bankruptcy code. And then if, if all the chips fall the right way with uh, stay relief and everything else, then you don't even implicate the absolute priority rule. Um, of course, that was one way of getting it done in 93. In, in 2005, um, this gifting concept was uh, attempted via a plan in uh, the Armstrong World Industries case. Um, and this was, um, a case involving a Chapter 11, of course. Uh, there was a plan that was put together, and uh, there were 11 classes of creditors, and then Class 12 was the uh, equity of Armstrong World Industries. And the way the plan was set up uh, was that the um, Class 6 and Class 7, both equal rank, they were both unsecured creditors, but still uh, by numerical value, of course, Class 6 was ahead of Class 7. Um, they indicated that Class 6 would receive a distribution, uh, Class 7 would receive a distribution, and then Class 12 would receive some equity um, from in, in the new reorganized debtor. So, of course, Class 12 was, was the equity. They were below Class 6 and Class 7. Uh, understanding that Class 6 may not like what it was going to receive, um, the plan also provided that if class six were to reject the plan, then the equity would actually be issued to class seven, and then class seven would be deemed to gift that equity to class 12, the existing equity holders. Now, one thing uh, that was important in this case was uh, that this is, a, again, the Third Circuit in 2005. Uh, the court held that uh, the plain language of the statute, the absolute priority rule of 1129B2B2, um, indicated that um, it does not, uh, re it, there is no re requirement that an objecting class be in an intervening class. So one issue was that while class six was receiving what it was receiving, class seven was slightly behind it. Uh, and then, of course, cl class 12 was behind both of them. Um, they took issue and said, you know, why is class six objecting? Because class seven is the one gifting. But uh, the court held that the plain language of the statute uh, indicates that um, through a plan, um, a property cannot be given to a junior claimant over 
the objection of a more senior class, but it does not need to be an intervening class. Um, the court went on to hold that uh, the plan did, in fact, violate the absolute priority rule because it, it was a plan. So, of course, 1129B2B was implicated. And uh, it went on to distinguish the SPM case as well. Uh, the distinguishing factors noted by the Armstrong court were that um, at the time of the ruling in SPM, uh, it was a Chapter 7 case. But even though it was a Chapter 11 prior, there still was no plan in place. So the 1199 was not implicated. And secondly, of course, was that um, the property that was being shared or gifted was not property of the estate, subject to the distribution priority in the bankruptcy code. Rather, it was um, outside of the bankruptcy due, due to the uh, stay relief and payment due to the senior secure lender. And uh, finally, they also said that this was a true carve-out, uh, which, of course, creditors committee and their counsel in particular love to hear that um, you know, credit, senior secure creditors can carve out and give to other parties uh, some of their collateral. Um, the court went on further to say that um, what SPM and some other cases that, that they described, what they do not stand for, uh, they do not stand for, quote, the unconditional proposition that creditors are generally free to do whatever they wish with the bankruptcy proceeds they receive, end quote. Um, so that was kind of a, a step back from what many people thought SPM stood for, which was anybody can do what they want to do with their uh, distribution um, because it's their money. Uh, SPM, it was their money, but it was done outside of the bankruptcy um, through this agreement that was not approved by 9019 and it was not approved via plan. Uh, in this case, in Armstrong, um, the gifting was to be allowed on account of uh, their interest and through a plan. Therefore, uh, the plan was not uh, confirmed due to the violation of the absolute priority rule. More recently, um, the case of uh, DBSD North America, a uh, Second Circuit opinion from 2011, uh, which involved all sorts of issues uh, with Sprint and DISH, uh, insider claims transactions and things of that nature, or actually competitive claims transactions, things of that nature. Um, that one, we're going to focus on just the Sprint objection, which had to do with uh, gifting. We're not going to get into uh, the DISH network uh, purchase of claims and things of that nature. Um, so in the DBSD case, you had, again, a Chapter 11 involving a plan where the second lien holders uh, were going to be given um, equity, and uh, their equity was going to be, uh, the recovery was approximately 51 to 73 percent of uh, the value of their debt, so they were not being paid in full. Uh, the unsecured creditors um, were then going to be also given equity equal to 4 to 46 percent of their claims, um, and they, of course, would also not be paid in full. But um, the second lien position was going to share some of their equity with the existing equity. Um, so the unsecured creditors, of course, you know, uh, Sprint being one of them, objected and said the second lien uh, holder should not be able to give any of their equity to um, the existing equity because we're not getting paid in full. And uh, this court, similar to Armstrong, Third Circuit said, yes, you cannot do this through a plan. Um, or even though the second lien position was not getting paid in full, so technically it's giving a gift of, of 4 to 46% to the unsecured creditors by allowing them to receive some equity, it doesn't matter that um, they're getting, getting a gift if they object to a junior party also receiving a gift. So uh, once again, SPM was, was put to the task and, and differentiated, um, and the courts uh, in DBSD indicated that, once again, in, chap in, in SPM it was a Chapter 7 case, and it was not involving property of the estate. Um, and uh, there's a quote where Simon mentioned the new value corollary and, and other items like that. Uh, the DBSD court alluded to that when it stated, quote, given that the Supreme Court has hesitated to allow old owners to receive new ownership interests, even when contributing new value, 
it is doubtful the court would allow old owners to receive new ownership without contributing any new value, as in this case. Uh, so in this case, uh, the Second Circuit held that the attempt at gifting by the second lien uh, holders to the equity was in violation of the absolute priority rule. And uh, another quote from this case is uh, um, interesting one um, where they indicate, quote, we need not decide whether the code would allow the existing shareholder and senior no holders, uh, this is the second lien holders, to agree to transfer shares outside of the plan for, on the pleasant, present record, the existing shareholder clearly receives these shares and warrants under the plan. So DBSD is uh, further uh, differentiating that case from SPM by indicating that um, this gift was to be done through the plan, and because it was being done through the plan, it was not allowed uh, as being in violation of the absolute priority rule. Uh, they went further to say, um, you know, SPM still has some viability here because we're not deciding, and we don't have to decide, uh, whether an agreement outside of a plan would be enforceable. Uh, now, with with that backdrop, I'm going to turn it back over to Simon to uh, deal with the uh, very recent case of ICL Holdings. Thanks, Rick. Uh, ICL is uh, the most recent circuit-level opinion on uh, the gifting doctrine and the absolute priority rule. It's uh, it was issued in the opinion was issued by the Third Circuit in September 2015, and it, it came up in connection with the distribution uh, with a distribution proposed in connection with a uh, sale of assets. It was um, were actually two components to the um, to the distribution. There was um, a settlement between the purchaser slash secured lender, which was this same entity, um, and the committee. And there was also um, not a settlement, but simply a uh, straight payment of, uh, of certain administrative expenses by the, the purchaser. The court um, began by, by assuming that the absolute priority rule does apply to distributions in connection with, uh, with a sale. The court um, found that the gifting doctrine was, was satisfied here, and, and so um, the absolute priority rule was, was successfully evaded. But um, the court sort of began its analysis by, by assuming that uh, any distribution of estate property in connection with uh, a sale uh, would be subject to the absolute uh, priority rule. So the case involved a relatively common scenario. A debtor had um, uh, basically no equity in its in its assets. It had uh, an undersecured creditor with a blanket lien on all assets. The, the day before the bankruptcy filing, the debtor entered into a purchase agreement by which the uh, the lender a credit bid. It was a straight credit bid with no, uh, well, initially no cash component. And the, the day after entering, entering into that purchase agreement, the debtor filed and then ran the sale process. Uh, no bids superior to the lender's credit bid emerged. So um, you had a, a situation where uh, you know, initially it was just a pure credit bid and um, uh, no cash uh, appeared likely to uh, be entering into the state. Um, I, I should say that the agreement contained uh, a provision whereby the purchaser agreed to pay um, certain administrative claims, basically the, the sale costs and um, the legal and accounting fees of the debtor and the committee. And importantly, the, the agreement provided that um, these the funds to, to pay these administrative costs would be paid uh, by the purchaser into an escrow account from which the, the funds would then be paid directly to the, the administrative claimants. So they would never actually enter into the debtor's coffers. So the purchase agreement contained this, this component to it to provide for the payment of, of sale costs. And then um, shortly after filing the uh, sale motion, the creditors committee objected um, and basically to the effect that um, there was there was going to be no benefit to uh, to anybody other than the lender by this uh, sale process. The 
uh, purchaser slash lender, and the committee then entered into a settlement of, uh, of the committee's objection. Uh, the committee would, would withdraw in its objection, and uh, in return, the purchaser agreed to deposit $3.5 million into a trust account for the benefit of the general unsecured creditors. So you, at this point, there, there are two sort of pots of, of money. There's the, there's the funds that the purchaser had sort of put into escrow for the payment of, uh, of administrative costs and, and sale costs. And then there was this other pot of money, which was being held in escrow uh, in the amount of $3.5 million uh, for the benefit of general unsecured creditors. And, and at this point, if neither one of these pots of money has sort of ever touched the, the debtor's coffers. Um, the bankruptcy court approved the, the sale over the objection of um, the federal government. Now, the federal government had a $24 million administrative claim, which would go completely unpaid. And, and the federal government's gripe was that um, as an administrative claimant, it was, was on a par in terms of priority with um, the debtors and the committee's uh, legal and accounting professionals who were going to be paid in full via the uh, money that had been set aside in escrow to pay them. And uh, in addition, the government pointed out that the $3.5 million that was in trust for the general unsecured creditors uh, would, would obviously go to the general unsecured creditors, skipping over the government's uh, higher priority administrative claim. So the government argued that the absolute priority rule was violated because it had a $24 million administrative claim that was being skipped entirely. And meanwhile, you know, equally situated administrative creditors were going to be paid in full and general unsecured creditors were going to receive some, uh, probably very small return, but some return on, on their claims. So uh, assuming that the absolute priority rule did apply to um, the disbursements of, of both of these pots of, of money, the bankruptcy court held that um, the funds that were being dispersed were not state property and, and therefore were, were not subject to the absolute priority rule. Um, the appeal went up to the, the Third Circuit, and um, the Third Circuit upheld the two distributions, the distribution of, of the money from the escrow account to pay the uh, administrative claims and the uh, distribution of funds from the other escrow account to pay uh, general and secured creditors. Um, and the, the government's gripe was, was that the, the absolute priority rule was, was violated because its administrative claim was, was skipped over. So the Third Circuit began its opinion um, first discussing the uh, $3.5 million that the, the purchaser had placed in escrow and then which was transferred to the general unsecured creditors in settlement of the committee's objection to the sale. And the court agreed, the court of appeals agreed with the bankruptcy court that this was a dispersal not of a state property, but of the secured creditor's own funds. And it was very important that these funds were, um, were not did not pass through the estate at, at any part in this process. Instead, the funds were held in, uh, in an escrow account separate from, from any property of the estate and then were paid directly to the uh, creditors in question. So at no point did these funds ever become um, estate property. And because it wasn't a distribution of estate property, it was essentially just um, sort of any non-bankruptcy distribution from or payment of, you know, of funds from one entity to another, the court held that it was it was a pure gift, and so the uh, so it was was sort of free from any strictures of the absolute priority rule. Um, the court, in its opinion, distinguished the Armstrong World case that Rick mentioned. Um, the, the principal reason for the, the distinction was that um, in Armstrong, it was a gift. It was clearly a gift of estate 
property. It was it was a property that you know, sort of originated from the estate and then would have gone to to one to a more senior class of creditors, but instead, you know, with with the the agreement of that senior class of creditors, went instead to a junior creditor. But the key to to Armstrong was that it was um, a distribution of estate property, whereas in ICL it was clearly money that you know, was not from the estate and, and never had been from the estate. So, Simon, this is Paul, and, and I suspect that the IRS would disagree with your last statement. It was clearly not money that came from the estate because, of course, it was the settlement of the objection to get the deal done. But um, the money that was escrowed to pay the professional fees and the wind-down costs, that's a, that's a much harder harder situation, isn't it? And, and yes. How, how do they how do they get around saying that's not property? Now the court discussed that next, and the court actually acknowledged that the money that was set aside to pay the administrative claims was a much more uh, difficult analysis. Um, and the reason for that was because the purchase agreement explicitly referred to um, the purchasers agreement to, to pay these administrative claims as part of the sale consideration. So the government's argument there was that um, you know, these were explicitly proceeds from the sale, and under um, Section 541A6, proceeds from a debtor's assets are themselves a state property. So the government really pointed to this section in the asset purchase agreement and said, look, these, these funds are you know, proceeds of a state property, and therefore they're, they're a state property. And if they're going to be dispersed, the dispersal has to be uh, in compliance with the absolute priority rule. And this is the part of the court's analysis that, that I think it might have been a, a little sort of result-driven and um, has, has maybe caused some, some controversy. The court sort of ignores the fact that uh, the purchase agreement explicitly labels these funds as proceeds or as, as consideration for the, the sale. And you know, the, the court says, I can, I, can, uh, I can read what the court says because it, it's fairly succinct. The court just says, um, um, it, we recognize that in the abstract it may seem strange for a creditor to claim ownership of cash that it parted with in exchange for something, but in this context it makes sense. Though the sale agreement gives the impression that the secured lender group agreed to pay the enumerated liabilities as partial consideration for LifeCare's assets, it was really to facilitate a smooth transfer of the assets from the debtor's estates to the secured lenders by resolving objections to that transfer. To assure that no funds reached LifeCare's estate, the secured lenders agreed to pay cash for services and expenses through escrow arrangements. The court really does seem to just ignore or at best gloss over the fact that, that these funds were um, sort of explicitly deemed by the parties when they created the asset purchase agreement to be part of the sale consideration. Um, another thing the court points to is the fact that under the purchase agreement, all of the debtor's assets, including cash, were to go to the, the purchaser. So the court says, well, assuming that there was cash in the estate, the cash sort of automatic, any cash in the estate would automatically uh, revert to the, the purchaser. So this cash sort of would have belonged to the purchaser regardless, and the purchaser is free to do with it what it what it wants. But this was the part of the court's analysis that um, was it was a little maybe unclear at, at best, and seems seems to have been kind of a glossing over of of the fact that the funds escrowed for the administrative claims were deemed to be consideration for the sale in, in the purchase agreement. Yeah, they moved they moved through it awfully quick there, and and you described it as a results driven or potentially results dri driven um, analysis there, and. I think another way of looking at it maybe was that it was the least bad of several bad alternatives um, because the alternatives to approving this bill, none of which were good because, as always, this was the proverbial melting ice cube. Yep. And something needed to happen quickly or jobs were going to be lost and, and the story that we always hear. Um, so I agree with, this, with that suggestion that, it's, that it does appear to be sort of 
uh, results driven in, in, in a very, very, very limited analysis of what's obviously a very important issue, uh, particularly when it comes from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes, it really was a very limited discussion, and and, and the court seemed to be seemed to be saying that well, you know, we're we're going to treat this these funds as if they were um, sort of paid to resolve objections to the transfer is is, is what what the court says basically is we're going to treat these as as you know funds being paid the language the courts used as, as funds being paid to facilitate a smooth transfer of assets um, by resolving objections to that transfer. Um, which is strange because the the objection that actually was lodged you know, wasn't uh, it wasn't really to to the escrowing of of those funds, but uh, it's the court's really equating the the payment of of these funds from the escrow account to the administrative claimants as as having been made to resolve an objection. So sort of in the nature of a the settlement payment as opposed to a distribution of funds that really were. Um, proceeds of asset of the uh, assets of the estate. Um, so, well, Simon, so that's... And all... Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead, Paul. I, I was going to ask a question and invite anybody to respond, really. But um, it seems to me whether or not you agree with the uh, court's opinion uh, for purposes of of our constituents and members of this committee, the Unsecured Trade Fairs Committee, uh, it's kind of a good result, right? Because uh, it does create some opportunities for um, an elegant solution to some difficult problems in some of these cases where you have a committee who's objecting, you have um, a lot of parties who are out of the money, and, and this sort of creates an avenue, don't you think? It, it's really the only way that the general unsecured creditors get anything, and and with an enormous ad, uh, administrative claim in the way, um, you know, a lender wants to pay the the sale costs, but a lender you know doesn't want to have to pay a twenty four million dollar administrative claim as, as a prerequisite to being able to pay the sale costs. So, you know, as you mentioned, Paul, this this really was the only way that that the sale gets done in this case. And and the, and and and. Uh reinforces the power and the role that the committee can play in these types of cases because, uh, you know, um, the reason the deal was made with the committee was because the committee was objecting to the sale. And they presumably had very good counsel uh, who was getting paid by somebody other than the client and could take up these arguments, and that was the leverage to get the settlement. And, you know, the other objecting parties in these types of gifting place, uh, cases often don't have that leverage to get that settlement. So... I, I do think it's an opportunity um, uh, for for a committee to uh, to create some value for its members. Yeah, and, and I think one other takeaway is is that you know I think the the court here really did have trouble dealing with the fact that the purchase agreement explicitly labeled these uh, these funds designated for the payment of administrative claims as a consideration. For, for the purchase of estate property, uh, going forward, I think it's clear that you don't want to do that in, in your in, the, in your purchase agreement. If you want uh, this type of, of payment arrangement to to sort of be passed smoothly, even though the court of appeals here uh, did approve the the payment to administrative claimants, and I think that uh, the fact that it was labeled uh, consideration in, in the purchase agreement did cause some some trouble and um, you probably don't want to do that if if you want to have this sort of arrangement be sort of easily passed so I think that that's a lesson that if if somebody wants to replicate the result of, of ICL they should learn yeah yeah Rick I, I won't ask you to try and distinguish that uh, property of the estate analysis there from the Armstrong uh, opinion because you, you know um, as, as Simon said, it, it was consideration in the asset purchase agreement uh, even before the objection was filed. Um, but do you see this as, and somebody mentioned the Jevic case early on here, uh, that's the, the structured dismissal case, which I think itself um, could be the subject of a, uh, uh, of a separate call, what is structured dismissals, but a structured dismissal settlement that it, in that case also uh, had consideration bypassing a priority unsecured creditor to the general unsecured creditors. 
And yeah. I'm wondering what you guys or anybody else think, is, is this a sign of a trend and what's causing this? Well, I think one interesting distinction is, is that in Jevic, um, the distribution actually did not evade the uh, absolute priority rule. The court did apply the absolute priority rule, but nonetheless upheld the, the class skipping because uh, it was sort of it was a melting ice cube, and, and really the only way forward was to approve but the sale. Whereas in ICL, I, I thought I thought Jevic was a settlement over the objection of Warnack claimants, some of which had priority claims. Yeah, it was. It's so sort of interwoven with a structured dismissal. Yeah, yeah. So, so in Jevic, you have a structured dismissal, which contemplates uh, distributions going uh, from uh, uh, to unsecured creditors to settle some litigation yeah. without the money going to the unsecured priority. And and of course, here in in ICL, you have the IRS, which had an unsecured priority or administrative expense claim. I don't recall. Um, but sort of being bypassed, and yeah. and again, maybe that's just another case. Jevic is is just like ICL, where you've got a number of bad options, and and the Third yeah. Circuit looking for, or the underlying bankruptcy courts, which are subsequently yeah. affirmed by the Third Circuit, looking for uh, a solution. Yeah, I, I think the neat the neat thing about sort of following the ICL blueprint is that you avoid the the absolute priority rule at all, because um, if if you do it right and and you keep the payments at all times segregated from the estate and have them not pass through the estate, then you don't even get to the point where you're being scrutinized under the absolute priority rule. You know, Instead, you've got basically a, a transfer of money from one non-debtor to another non-debtor that really doesn't implicate um, anything, any any strictures of the bankruptcy code to do with, with distributions. Right. I think that's really one of the key takeaways from, from ICL is that you know, if, if you want to be able to make payments to, to however you see fit to, to any class of creditors, you, you have to be very careful to just sort of avoid sort of any appearance that these are uh, these are estate funds. You, you, know, you really want to be clear that these are the creditors' own funds. Right, not going to not going to the bankruptcy estate. Yeah, the, the true takeaway, unfortunately, is that um, as an unsecured creditor, you're you're better off in a non-plan situation. Because if if you're in a plan situation, then your options are limited, and while you can object to confirmation, you can object to senior, or you can object to secure creditors' claims. You can take all those actions, but uh, you're still not going to be easily uh, able to find a way in the money. Um, if yeah. there's a sale, uh, you know, be it credit bidding or otherwise, if there's a sale or if there's uh, relief from stay and um, you know, such as SPM, and it, it, that's your better case scenario. You're, you're actually um, almost rooting for the, the the debtor to fail, so you can extract some value through a sale rather than being stuck in the structures of a plan. Right, as if people needed more reasons for the trend to go away from confirming a reorganization or a sale plan and and doing all of this by way of a 363 sale. This is this is yet another one. As is, I think, and we talked about this in our on our call the other day, sort of preparing for this, is that there's been a number of opinions recently by appellate courts. Uh, one last fall by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I think more recently, in just in the last week or so, by the Second Circuit, which really are sort of cutting back on the on the doctrine of equitable mootness. And um, I think another reason why you may see continue to see the trend of of transaction sales occurring through a 363 process instead of a plan is because at least in a sale you have 363M and you know that if you're a good faith purchaser and get that finding, you're going to be free from having the sale in most cases set aside on appeal. But if you do it through a plan and you rely on the on the doctrine of equitable mootness, there's there's a couple of appellate court opinions that people should keep their eye on that seem to be cutting back on that uh, that doctrine. Uh, at least in the ninth and second circuits. So um, we haven't had many questions from the audience, and wanted to invite if anybody has any questions or comments to uh, to share. Um, you know, we have some time to do that. So uh, you know, please unmute your line. I think did did Martha say it was hit star and then six? Uh, yes, yes that's correct. Yeah, hit star six. Um, you know, uh, please. Uh, now would be a great time to ask any questions. Hello, this is uh, David Katzen. May I ask a question? Please do. So, 
there's the question of form over substance here. And in the uh, sale agreement, there was a designation that suggested perhaps the funds involved were proceeds of the sale, which created the risk that they would be regarded as in the kitty and therefore get stuck there, subject to the absolute priority kind of analysis. But standing back from the thing, it seems to me that the main policy or logic of the absolute priority rule is that the bankruptcy system as a sort of an institution is reticent or reluctant to uh, place its imprimatur on this uh, sort of evasion of priority. And therefore, the question to me is, if that is a legitimate policy, if that is sort of the, the principle that's in, at stake here, why is it okay to use a committee objection in a 363 sale which is still happening under the auspices of the bankruptcy as the vehicle, rather than, for example, having the case dismissed under an agreement that the secured creditor will then complete its foreclosure and some share of the money will go to some designated kitty for some uh, trustee representative uh, asking for the benefit of creditors to administer under terms the parties have agreed to. Sorry for being so long-winded. No, I, I think it's very well said, uh, and, and, and that is the million-dollar question. And uh, why this case has generated uh, so much discussion, uh, and I would suggest if you're looking to the, for the answer to that question in the Third Circuit's opinion, which is sort of a form over substance type analysis that's very, very short, uh, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Uh, but it's, um, you know, there aren't too many more fundamental policies to bankruptcy law that we all learned in our law school classes than the absolute priority rule uh, and, and the protection that those, those people who have higher priority get paid first. Uh, and, and yet, you know, here we are. Yes, I, I think this opinion does make it seem quite easy to to evade the, the absolute priority rule, uh, especially in a in a sale slash settlement context. You know, simply by sort of building a pipeline uh, through which the funds will flow uh, directly from you know, one creditor to another creditor. It, it does make it seem uh, sort of awfully easy to to bypass the, the distribution priority strictures. You know, and this is this is Paul again, and I don't know if, if Simon or Rick or anybody else on the phone if you know the answer to this, but when the $3.5 million settlement payment, which the Third Circuit said was an easier question uh, because, it, you know, it wasn't specifically carved out of the sale, you know, in, in the sale agreement itself. It was a settlement of the, of the objection. Easier question because it's easier to say that that's not property of the state. Where did the payment go? the payment go to the unsecured creditors committee? Did the payment go to a trust? Did it become, I mean, somebody collected that check and when it did, where did the yeah. money go yeah. and how was it distributed? And if that's not the estate, and I didn't see the answer to this question in the third circuit's opinion, yeah. by the way, so I'm, I'm reaching if anybody anywhere knows the answer, but it would seem to me that money went somewhere <laughs> and was distributed to creditors, unsecured creditors by the committee or, or some entity it controlled. And if that's the case, how does it not go into the estate? Yeah. Well, that's, I, I know that's, the opinion says in one place um, that the uh, the bankruptcy court found that uh, it says because the settlement agreement permits a distribution directly to the unsecured creditors from the purchaser, it is an indication that the funds are not property of life of life care as a state. So, so I guess there must have been some direct route from from the purchaser to the, the creditors. Right. Well, the interesting thing, going back to SPM also, is is um, the, the Second Circuit kind of punted on that, where uh, it indicated at the hearing uh, in 1991, just, just a few years ago, uh, Council for Citizens, the senior secure lender, requested the court to order the Chapter 7 trustee 
to oversee the distribution of the proceeds to the general unsecured creditors. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the court did punt on that because they, they reversed the bankruptcy court order, which required the trustee to administer for all creditors. Uh, and then they remanded to the bankruptcy court to determine whether to allow citizens motion to have the trustee administer the distribution of funds due to the general unsecured creditors under the agreement. So in that one, they even tried to bring it back in by, by implicating the Chapter 7 trustee and saying, you know, we're moving this money outside of the estate, but we're going to bring it back in by having the Chapter 7 trustee administer it. And that didn't bother uh, the Second Circuit way back then, whether that was a component in today's world that may change the result. We don't, we don't know. This is uh, David Katzen again, but that underscores to me the idea that the original principle of the bankruptcy system not placing its imprimatur on the evasion of priority. I mean, if somebody just wants to make a gift on their own, that's one thing, but if it's being done using the architecture of bankruptcy to do it, then it's implicating the bankruptcy system in something that seems problematic. And it seems sort of like a little mini scam. And it doesn't, I mean, it seems to me that if you're using the bankruptcy system to get some special protection for a buyer that you can't get outside bankruptcy, or you're using the trustee as the officer who's going to administer the funds, then uh, it looks to me like an emperor with no clothes. Yeah, and it, the answer, of course, um, to that question is, the unsecured creditors committee doesn't exist outside the bankruptcy world. So of course, and you know, so that's, that's why they, they want these. And that's why even, you know, one wonders in SPM, they had this deal all set up and then all the, you know, it was all secret. Nobody knew about it. And then they decided to, yeah, to come in and, and have the court bless the situation and also have the chapter seven trustee administer the funds. Well, why, why all of a sudden did they come in and, and do that? And, and, um, and they got away with it in that situation, but uh, and of course in ICL they they did the same thing where uh, they they said okay judge we want you to, to bless this happening and and it, it does like you said raise the question of why should the bankruptcy court be involved in that if this is in not property of the estate if these are proceeds being divided up amongst creditors uh, on side agreements then right there, there shouldn't be any bankruptcy court cases at all on gifting. Paul, can you hear me? This is Lisa Gretschko. We can hear you, Lisa. Go oh, ahead. Oh, good. Here's my question. I want to respond to David Katzen's point. Um, David, I've been practicing for a really long time now, and I can remember uh, this is not new. It's just a new wrinkle on an old game. Having repre- Not game, but having represented secured creditors for a large chunk of my career, um, Whenever we wanted to use the bankruptcy courts, we had to sort of leave some money on the table for the unsecured. Got to pay the freight. Pay the yep. right. And how is this materially different? I would have situations where the secured creditor was clearly underwater, but we felt that bankruptcy was faster, better, cheaper, neater, whatever, and we would leave a shekel or two or 12 on the table for the unsecured creditors. The U.S. trustee would sign off on it. It usually got blessed by some sort of financing order um, where it was either a carve-out for professional fees for the debtor in the committee and um, and and something left over for unsecured creditors. Is this materially different on a conceptual basis from what's been going on for decades? Like maybe well, one thing about this that's the exception rather than the norm is that there was a very large administrative claim other than the, the freight costs that was being skipped over. It's sort of not um, maybe typical that there is such a yeah. large you know, priority or administrative claim that's being skipped over. Uh-huh. Um, but you know that said, uh, I I would think that this you know would have happened by now, and and um, you know is something that that has happened even um, you know even with sort of these large intermediate claims getting skipped over. Yeah, I think that's a distinction, and there's there's nothing, um, uh, and and I suspect nobody on this call would have any objection to the concept that if you're going to get the benefits of the bankruptcy code. Uh, and the free and clear sale order that you're looking for, that you got to pay the freight and leave um, leave 
leave something less than an administratively insolvent case, or you know something not leave an administratively insolvent uh, case, and, and and pay the pay the cost of of getting that protection that you've been looking for. But when you're skipping over a twenty million dollar claim, that's that's when it becomes um, a, a much uh, a, something unique, I think. Yeah, th this is David Katzen, and and yes, Lisa, I'm I'm well aware of this uh, common dynamic where a secured creditor wants to take advantage of uh, sensible structural benefits from right. the bankruptcy context, but needs to pay the freight, and I, I think that's salutary, mm -hmm. not a problem. It only becomes a problem when you try as part of that to sort of pervert structures of the bankruptcy system while taking the benefit of them. And that's what happens. I, I suggest there's the appearance of that happening if you if you distort the priority scheme. So is is the uh, is the practice pointer from this case when you're representing a creditors committee is that even in those cases where you are out of the money, keep throwing those grenades grenades to the sale motion because you can work out the settlement, you can find a way to get some money, at least in the Third Circuit, that seems to be okay. Well, and Paul, <laughs> to, to add to that also, it's also throw grenades to any 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 attempt to plan because you're better off, again, not in a plan situation, you're better Here off... Here to say are the folks to plan, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Well, that certainly sounds, this is Katzen, it certainly sounds to me as if that's astute lawyering, uh, I am troubled by whether it is does any sort of violence to bigger concerns about the institution. Well, I'm with you on that, David. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's um, um, uh, as a very fundamental issue of bankruptcy law, there are some very troubling parts of, of this opinion. Any other sort of questions or, or comments from the audience? Um, uh, it's been, been wonderful comments and questions. Okay, well, we've been over an hour here, so um, I think we can uh, wrap it up. But thank you again for joining us. Uh, we'll do another call. We're not, we're not going to be doing a call in April because, again, we have this uh, excellent program at the ABI spring meeting in a couple weeks. But we're, we have another call scheduled for May. Uh, it's in, in mid-May, and there will be announcements that are going out both on our listserv, on the Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee's uh, new LinkedIn group. If you're, you're not part of that, please do join it. And elsewhere, we'll be promoting it. But it's going to be, the May's call is going to be uh, entitled 503B9, 10 years later. And uh, 503B9 has been with us as part of BAPSIPA for 10 years now. and so. It's going to be an overview of some of the interesting opinions and issues that have come up as a result of, of that provision being added to the code. So I hope you join us uh, for that call. And uh, again, if anybody's interested in participating on or leading a discussion or has just a good topic for a future call, uh, please uh, do reach out to me or uh, Brent Weisenberg, my co-chair, or Mark Felger, who's going to be becoming the incoming uh, co-chair, and we'll get something on the calendar. Uh, so thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.